Well, hello there and welcome back to the show. I am so glad that you're here today. You know, this podcast has given me the opportunity to have so many powerful conversations with some of the most brilliant women on this planet, in my opinion. Now, some of those conversations are really meant to be shared again, and that's why I'm rebroadcasting this impactful conversation I had with Jessica Leahy, author of The Gift of Failure and The Addiction Inoculation. This episode is strategically placed at the beginning of the new school year as a reminder to us all to let go so our kids can succeed. Now, I read Jessica's book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed during virtual learning. It was a suggestion by the school counselor and man, was it powerful. Now, as a mom with neurodiverse kiddos, I have always had this protectiveness around my kiddos, not wanting to let them fail not letting, wanting to let them fall because I know what it does for their self-esteem. Even though I know from my own experience that we learn so much more from our failures than we do from our successes. Now, this brilliant book has helped me see it differently when it comes to my kids, that failure is an opportunity for growth and kind of a rite of passage, right? And that my job is to be there when they do fail because they will fail. Now, I believe we do need to step in a bit more than other moms with neurotypical kids because of the increased executive functioning obstacles that come with ADHD. Maybe spending a little more time on the front end, helping them get set up for success and letting them know that failure is just a part of learning. It's a part of life. Now, during this episode of the Vision Driven Mom with ADHD podcast, Jessica Leahy shares so many gold nuggets from her book, The Gift of Failure, how the best parents learn to let go so their children can succeed and the important lessons we can learn alongside our kids when we as parents get out of the way. We talk about what executive functioning is and why it's crucial to foster these skills during adolescence. How puberty is so much more than hormones that the human brain goes through an incredible growth spurt during adolescence, kind of like it did during in early childhood. That middle school is the ideal time to let our kids fail. And our job during this time is to be there when they screw up. We talk about her amazing new book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. And toward the end of the interview, she shares a really great story about one of her own failures while she was during motherhood. Now, Jessica Leahy is a teacher, a writer, and a mom. In over 20 years, she's taught every grade from 6 to 12 in both public and private schools. She writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for the Washington Post, the New York Times, and various other outlets. And she's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. She is a member of the Amazon Studios Thought Leaderboard and wrote the educational curriculum for Amazon Kids, The Stinky and Dirty Show. Jessica earned a JD with a concentration in juvenile and education law from the University of North Carolina School of Law. She lives in Vermont with her husband and two sons. And her second book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence, was released in April of 2021. Now, before we dig in, I wanted to share a word from our sponsor. Now, one thing I know for sure is that when we are activated, our kiddos feel all of it. 
especially as we head into a new school year, knowing that there are going to be times when we'll just need to let them fall flat on their faces. Yikes. Now, that's why I depend on experts like nervous system educator Krista Bevan. Krista Bevan has created a truly brilliant course to help moms like me and you regulate our nervous systems that tend to run on overdrive with ADHD. Now, if you know you need some help in the emotional regulation area and executive functioning that is, that, that is often challenging for ADHDers, check out her foundations course. It's designed for what she calls cycle breaker moms, but the content is brilliant for ADHD moms too. And it has honestly been a game changer in my own life. Now I'm a course participant and I love the way Krista teaches in a way that my ADHD mind can understand along with easy steps to implement what I'm learning into my everyday life. You can find all the deets at bit.ly forward slash VDM dash radical mother dash foundations, or you can find the link in the show notes. And just so you know, I only recommend and allow sponsors that I have personal experience with and Krista and her courses are the real deal. So check out the course and enjoy this rebroadcast episode with Jessica Leahy. And you're listening to the Vision Driven Mom with ADHD podcast with Tracy Nolan Bierman, where we believe that you can have ADHD without ADHD having you. Each week, you'll hear firsthand relatable stories, as well as invaluable tips, tools, and practices for managing overwhelm and using your beautiful, unique mind as a superpower. Motherhood with ADHD is the journey of a lifetime. Let's enjoy the ride together. Well, welcome, Jessica. It's great to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm really excited. I really can't wait to dig into your book. But first of all, can you tell us uh, tell us a little bit about your journey, how, how your books came into being, how you got to be where you are today? So the writing thing has always been a, a constant in my life. I've written um, my whole life. Uh, ironically, there's this wonderful confluence of events, a nice circularity just happened. I just had an article on the cover of Boston Globe magazine and my very first published piece ever as a student when I was in high school was in Boston Globe, a little oh student gosh. edition. So it was this really wonderful moment where, you know, I pulled out the little thing I wrote as a 17 year old and got to sort of hold it up next to the cover of the magazine and sort of see this trajectory. It was so cool for me because that was my hometown paper. So I've always cool. been a writer. I was like, you know, like the classic editor in chief of my school paper kind of thing. And then and wrote, you know, I wrote the classic first book that should really stay in the drawer and no one should ever see it. <laughs> yes. It's like the, you know, the training run. Um, you know, I managed to salvage some pieces from it and sold them to magazines. But um, after I wrote that book, I just, I didn't know what to write about next. I, I, you know, I just didn't have a vision for what I wanted to be writing about. And so my husband said, you know, when you write about it, it's when you talk about teaching that you just really light up from inside and that's what you should be writing about. And I said, well, who's going to read that? No one wants to read about teaching. It turns out that what's really cool about education right now, where we are with technology is that so many teachers blog about their teaching and yeah. it is so helpful for other teachers because we can talk about what's working, what's not working, and it can be a real place to sort of vent and work things out. And right. so I started doing that and I just, you know, at first I think I had about, you know, it was like my mom reading it and, you know, maybe one right. of my friends. <laughs> 
<laughs> Maybe, probably my boss, which was unfortunate because I was working out a lot of stuff. Um, and then it just sort of caught on. And I ended up starting to write about education, not from a policy but perspective, but from a practice perspective for the right. Atlantic. Um, I started, I had a column for the New York Times for three years called the Parent-Teacher Conference. And in the middle of all of that, um, I started working out to, you know, I have the coolest job ever. I get to sort yeah. of get curious about topics research them like crazy, which is one of my favorite things to do. I love a deep dive into the research and then translate it for parents, teachers, educators, school counselors, you know, whoever I think is going to be an audience for this stuff that I'm naturally curious about. And really that's where both of my books have come from is this place of, I just really need answers to these questions and these frustrations and these, you know, wondering about you know, how we parent kids, how is that related not only to their motivation, but to their learning. So right. that's really where it all comes from for me. I can't, you know, it's Gift of Failure came out in 2015. So for six years, I've been talking about this book. So when I tell people, other writers, don't even start to write a book until you're positive. You want to spend many years on that topic because that's right. what you're going right. to be doing between the research and the writing and the, and the talking about it afterwards. So my own curiosity, I guess, is the only, is the end, um, the end, the short answer to that question. Right, right. Well, and it's a journey, right? It, you, yeah. you start, and I, I love, I, I love that your what your husband said about. Well, you light up when you talk about teaching. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. doesn't it sometimes it's like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and what's Maybe. funny about that is that it also, you know, a couple of years ago, I was just feeling frustrated. I wasn't feeling um, motivated to write. And I and I had been writing consistently, churning out articles for both the New York Times and the Atlantic. And I, I said, today, I'm just writing for me. And I wrote right. this really funny blog post that was just for me. And it was goofy and silly. And it ended up being the most popular thing I've ever written on my website, like by far. And it was about um, how to get my kid had just decided he forgot how to do laundry. And <laughs> so I, I, I realized someone had told me at one point that you can write on the outside of washers and dryers with dry erase markers and oh, um, cool. put, so I put like all the instructions for how to do laundry on the outside of the washer and the dryer. And it was so silly and so funny. And I took a picture of like our dog turning her nose up at a pair of his pants because they were so stinky. And, you know, that went out and just people went not nuts for it. It gets shared all the time. And like Whirlpool, the people who made my washing machine were like, oh, can we use that? So it was just it was a good reminder to me that we write the best stuff when it's really coming from a place of enjoyment and cur true curiosity and play. That's often right. where my best stuff comes from anyway. Right. I love that, too, because that's what that's that's um, we talk. I talk a lot on this podcast and in the work that I do about really digging into who you are, like what lights mm -hmm. you up, because when right. you are lit up, then you light up other people around you. It's really interesting how that, how that works. But I love that story, that washing machine story. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's the other thing, you know, when it comes to writing, when it, you know, gift to failure, I'm thank goodness. I mean, it did, it did really, really well. And then the question is, what's your next book going to be? And the one thing that I knew I couldn't do was sort of like gift of failure part two. I just, right. that wasn't it. No matter how interesting it could, might have been for me anyway, it wasn't going to feed 
my soul. And so, um, you know, that was sort of the easy answer to what I was going to do next. And I decided instead to just kind of wait. And, you know, it wasn't, it was four years before I knew what I was going to write for my next book. And having that time um, was really great. And luckily I was out doing speaking, which is actually where most of my income comes from so that I wasn't having to depend on getting that next book out. Um, And so when that next book sort of came to me, I was in a place to go all in with that Mm, instead of sort of cobbling together something that was, you know, something that just wasn't coming from that place that, that radiates out happiness and, and, you know, true love and interest uh, for what I'm doing. Yeah, exactly. And again, that coming from, that coming from deep within you, that, 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 uh, that, uh, the passion that you have. Well, so I picked up, um, I picked up our school, school counselor suggested that I pick up your book, the gift of failure. School counselors are my people. School I love counselors. Love, love school counselors so much. And there's, you know, I've never until this year really had to. Um, I haven't sought the help of a school counselor. I haven't needed to until this year, and mm-hmm. um, and she was fantastic. She's actually been using your book with with parents and doing um, uh, book clubs. Okay, mm-hmm. and and getting a whole. I mean, just it, it was amazing to me. I oh, loved nice. the book. Nice. Um, we are where, you know, we're, we're where we are right now. We're doing virtual learning. <laughs> right. I have a sixth grader doing virtual learning who is, you know, tanking right now. Yeah. And so your book really helped me too, because we're, we're also doing, we're, we're in the middle of an ADHD uh, mm-hmm. testing as well. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm, I'm using your book and what I'm learning about ADHD and kind mm-hmm. of it, it kind of pairing the two, you know? Yeah. Do so you have anything to say about, um, it sounds like you do have yeah. something to say about well, that. No, I mean, that middle, it, what's funny is that middle, so when I wrote the book, I was a middle school teacher and middle school is my jam. I love those kids yeah. so, so much. I, I think, can tell you know, from your book. That's <laughs> where, you know, when I go back to full-time teaching, it will be middle school. I just love them so much. And yeah. um, so when it came to writing this book, you know, I think the natural focus landed on middle school. It's it's definitely a K through college book. And we right. definitely um, needed to sort of spread all of, make sure that it covered all of that. And it does, but there's the chapter on middle school um, really is the chapter on executive function. And yeah. it, and I think what most people don't realize is that executive function isn't one thing. It is a constellation of skills and those skills can fluctuate. You know, they can have mastery of one of those skills, like, you know, I don't know, time management or organizing their stuff or transitioning from one thing to another, and then yet not be able to do something else in that constellation of skills. And then like two weeks later, it could switch. They could have mastery of the thing Mm. they didn't have before. And then all of a sudden lose mastery of the thing that they suddenly have. And that's because the frontal lobe is just coming online. I mean, your kid is right in the middle of that frontal lobe starting to come online while the lower brain, the sort of amygdala driven limbic system driven sort of lower brain, um, you know, respond from a place of emotions and experience and perception um, is still in, you know, really in control. And so that breaking all of those things down, I think makes it a lot easier for us to look at a kid, especially a kid with ADHD and say, okay, what specific area are your deficits and how do I support you in those areas? So that actually, for me, was one of the fun chapters to write, because although it's very, it's technical about the skills, it's also about 
in a very real context, what do we do on a day-to-day basis to support, you know, kids developing those skills? And I have to toss out a book recommendation for you because if you have not read Phyllis Fagel's Middle School Matters, you must. Middle Middle School Matters, Matters. Phyllis Fagel is a middle school counselor, elementary and middle school counselor, and she gets middle school kids like nobody's Mm. business. And the entire book is how to talk with them, how to understand them, how to orient your thinking and and reframe your thinking around these kids to fully, because they're not small adults. Their brains are not done cooking yet. And so Phyllis has this incredible way of um, helping us see the world from their perspective and therefore communicate with them in a way that makes sense to a middle school brain. That is perfect. Thank you. I will absolutely pick that up because it's, Interesting, Jessica. They, they, I remember when um, when I had babies and toddlers and I had stacks of, um, of parenting books on my night table, like, what the heck do I do with yeah. babies in, you know, in, in a preschool, right. you know, early childhood? Right. And then we had this this phase of like six years. So my, kid, I, my kids are in <laughs> sixth and seventh grade. So I had this period of about six years where I didn't have any parenting books on my night right. table. Right. And then all of a sudden they're stacked again. <laughs> it's really it's I think an interesting no- time. It's no coincidence that 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 happened the way it does because the human brain. So we used to think that the human brain was done developing at age 10 because it's at the adult size at that point. But, you know, clearly you understand and, you know, having having a kid around that age that it's so not. So what's cool is that the the human brain is incredibly plastic during two periods in our lives, birth to age two and puberty through the early 20s. Ah, and that's those awesome. two okay. periods of development, that's why there are the most books around those periods, because that's where we feel the most helpless, because their brains right. are changing so fast. And understanding that, it gets to the root of, you know, how you support a kid through, you know, developing their executive function. Also, in my next book, which is about preventing substance abuse in kids, it's important to understand the adolescent brain, because it'll help us understand why things that might be per- totally fine in an adult brain in terms of substances or, you know, at least a little closer to harmless and, and not, if not totally fine, um, are absolutely not fine in the adolescent brain because um, during these two periods, they're also exquisitely sensitive to our environment and Mm. good and bad. And so understanding that and getting at the root of why these periods are so thorny is it helps us understand so many aspects of of getting them from from where they are now to being adults. Yeah, that is super helpful. And I didn't know. So I have a background in education um, as well. I was I was a preschool teacher, actually. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, even though I was a preschool teacher, it did not prepare me for having my own preschoolers yeah. <laughs> or babies or anything like that. I don't know what like it that. is with teachers. We get like this wall down the middle of our brain. And that's what I found in Gift of Failure when I was writing that is that there were all these things I was doing with my students. Like as their advisor, I was helping them with their short and long-term planning and supporting them in, you know, achievable short-term goals and big long-term goals and blah, blah, blah. All these things I was doing with my students, it never occurred to me to do with my own children. It's like, interesting, I don't know what it? my problem was. Yeah. I know. I, I just, I, I wonder if it's just a compartmentalizing. Okay. This is my work so. and this is my, this is my home, you know? Yeah. Right. I kind of, I, I, 
sometimes, and, and I, when I, I was majoring in middle school education, middle childhood education, mm-hmm. uh, when I was in school. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, I love that you pointed that out though, because it's really helpful. And I think our listeners will really get some value out of that, out of knowing mm-hmm. that. Right. Yeah. And I also understand now that we didn't know this when, um, back when I was a kid, but that mm-hmm. the, the brain isn't really even fully developed until like, till like 25. Is that right? Yeah. It's, it really depends on the kid somewhere yeah. between like early twenties to mid twenties. Um, again, like I said, depends on the kids, some kids brains, but it's also not something we can force because this is a matter of, it's not like a matter of just grow, you know, just grow up. You know, it's not like we can force that to happen. What's right. actually happening is the frontal lobe, which is the, you know, the prefrontal cortex right behind our foreheads, that part of the brain, it's there. It's just not hooked up in an efficient way to the rest of the brain until full, it's not fully hooked up until the early to mid twenties. So it's not like you can just force a kid to tap into the frontal lobe of their brain. It's like when I was teaching middle school and one of the things that comes along with that, that brain development is the ability to understand uh, metaphor and symbols and figurative language. So what I would do um, often with like seventh and eighth grade is I would teach stuff that has really knock you over the head, blatant symbols and like mythology and stuff like that. And just keep giving it to them over and over and over again. And some of the kids would get it and some of the kids wouldn't, but that's okay. I'm just patient. And I keep, teaching it until that day, one day when some like, you know, there's some metaphor, usually for some reason, it always happened when I was teaching. um, I taught at a school where we taught um, Great Expectations in seventh grade and Tale of Two Cities in eighth grade. Oh, cool. Which has both of those books have crazy knock you right over the head metaphors and figurative language. And often it would happen during those books and you could just see it connect in the kid's eyes and they would just go, oh, Oh, and literally that's like the day that those, the myelin has coded the particular nerves that need to conduct and and attach to the synapses and the synapses have connected between those two parts. And all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, that's what she's been talking about this whole time. And I can't tell you, I can't tell you the number of times I had an advisee where I'm like, Look, I, at staff meetings, I'd be like, look, I don't. we can't send this kid off to high school. He's never going to get there. He's going to be lost in the hallways. He's not even going to be able to find his locker. And then somewhere around the end of eighth grade, those things hook up. And it's like, I'm sorry, who are you? I've never met you before. How do you, right. wh- wait, you're remembering things? You know where your stuff is? And it's just a matter of being there to support them over and over and over again until those connections happen and they're off and running. But it, it can be incredibly frustrating, but it's what's so cool about middle school because that's the point of middle school. It's sort of like if you throw yourself in completely to this process and you say, I'm not going to get frustrated by this because that's the entire point of this period of development. And my job is to sit here and just be highly entertained by what I see around me all day long, kids forgetting stuff and their their shoes and you've lost one shoe. How do you even lose one shoe? I don't (laughs) even know how that happens, but it's highly entertaining. And that's why middle school is just so much fun. Right. You know, it's interesting. People say, Oh, middle school, my kids in middle school. I loved middle school. I don't know what it, I don't, I don't know what it was about middle school, but I loved it. I loved my group, the group of kids that I, I I just, it was, it was really the highlight. You know, a lot of people say they loved high school. My high school was huge. 
But my middle school, I loved, I loved my middle school years. The key, the secret sauce there, I think when I talk to people who liked middle school, it's often the people who had really great teachers during middle school. We did, we did. Or had a really strong peer group. We actually have middle school teachers who are still, that we're friends with on Facebook and Mm -hmm. that like, we we had amazing middle school teachers. You know, I think you're right. I think you're right. I can remember most of my middle school teachers um, more than I can remember just a few of my high school teachers, but definitely mm-hmm. middle school. So, um, I'm noticing in my son. So my son, my son's in seventh grade. He, we, we waited a year to send him. He was, he was mm-hmm. an early baby. Um, yep. so he would be in eighth grade, but I'm seeing exactly what you're talking about. It was like all of a sudden something switched. He's thriving in this virtual, yep. uh, in this virtual learning. And I thought it would be the other way around. I thought my kids would be yeah. switched around. It, it's been really interesting and really cool to watch. Like he's actually going to the team time, which is on Fridays yeah. where the whole, you know, like all the, all the kids and the teachers all get together and they play games and stuff like that. He's staying afterwards to, um, mm-hmm. to visit with the teachers and, you know, just chat. It's re- like, who is this yeah. kid? Like you were that's, talking about. That's wow. the amazing thing to me is that moment where you look at your kid and you say, I'm sorry, where did you even come from? And exactly. it's not because of one thing we do. It's because yeah. of this constant sort of understanding what motivates kids, how we can help them be motivated and how we can more importantly, get them to be intrinsically motivated. Right. Um, and that doesn't, we can't force that. And we can't lecture that into them um, and control that more into them, no matter how much we really want to. And, you know, I'm I, and now on the other end of this, I have a 22 year old and a 17 year old. Mm-hmm. And my 17-year-old is also young for his grade. And along the way, it's occurred to us, would it be helpful, you know, here and there to just stick around in a grade for an extra year? But I think for us and for him, what he's really excited about is actually a gap year before college so that he can have that year to work and to sort of figure out budgeting and figure out sort of schedules and buying your own groceries. And he, it was funny the other day, he said, I'm really looking forward to just doing things myself, like buying my own groceries and figuring out, you know, that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, so that gap year, I think, and, and I've actually written about, I wrote a piece for the Atlantic about for some kids, there is a huge amount of value in an extra year of middle school. Um, I, for a while I taught in a private middle school, which was a great option for local kids to do one extra year of middle school Hmm. before going on to high school. That was actually a fairly, and it was often boys and it was often in just beating eighth grade in a new environment just to get that one extra boost year, especially for kids who fall at the young end of the grade. Um, So that was, and I love watching those kids develop and the kids who got to do that actually. And I'm thinking of this one kid in particular, the kid I wrote about, he said it was so such a relief to be able to concentrate on just learning and Mm. just not having to think about, oh my gosh, I'm not going to get there in time. I'm not going to be, you know, he was little for his age. He wasn't socially where everyone else was. And so that year gave him an extra year to sort of just be who he was and adjust at the same you know, sort of physical rate as everyone else and social emotional rate as everyone else. It was really, really cool to watch that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, there, there is something. So we, we held, we, we, we said, we didn't say, we don't say we held him. We, we, we Mm -hmm. waited, we waited a year. Mm -hmm. He, if he would have come on his due date, he would have, um, he would have missed, you know, he wouldn't have gone on with the rest of the kids. Um, But I can definitely see where that, um, that, 
that year has really, really served him. And, you know, and that he's in eighth grade now and he's, and I think I can actually see him going off to high school next yep. year, you yep. know, or he's not, he's not in eighth grade. He's going to be in eighth grade, but I can see that he will be ready to go to high school when it's time. So the, um, can you tell us just a little bit about executive functioning? Like what exactly does yeah. that, what exactly are the components of executive function functioning? And I think it's really important for us as, um, as moms across the board, but, but you know, and mm -hmm. I, I really do wish that I had read your book um, earlier. I think I would have done some things a little bit differently, mm -hmm. you know, um, but mm -hmm. I'm glad that I have it now. Mm -hmm. uh, but tell us a little bit about executive functioning and, and so that so that our listeners can really understand that those things are developing and that we can't necessarily, we can't expect our middle schoolers, our sixth graders, you know, this is what I think sixth grade is when they're supposed to be learning these things like keeping yourself organized and how to use a planner or whatever, you know, all of those <laughs> yeah. things. It's an interesting time to be a sixth grader um, in yeah, the virtual, virtual learning. It's been a strange. Yeah. Keep in mind, the one thing that can be really helpful to realize is that, and I say this in Gift of Failure, that sixth grade in particular, especially if that's the first year of middle school for your kids, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's the end of elementary, but whatever right. sixth grade is, whatever the first year of middle school is, or junior high school, or whatever we're calling it, middle school is what most places call it, um, it's a real setup for kids because they do not have the executive function to be able to handle changing classes, knowing which materials to take in and out of their locker, um, right. being able to handle the increased uh, sort of social stuff that's going on and the hormonal stuff that's going on. Um, there's just so much all at once. And we yeah. sort of cast them from the security of a, a a K through, you know, a kindergarten through, let's say, whatever that last elementary school grade is, that last elementary school grade tends to be a place where you have one home base and all your yeah. stuff is in your desk and you don't right. have to worry about lockers and all that stuff. And that's safe and secure and reassuring to kids. And then all of a sudden we stick them into a place where, you know, it's just so much all at once. And yeah. that, as I said before, middle school teachers who really get middle school kids and really enjoy middle school kids get that it's a setup and that we are there to be there when they screw up and to support them and help them get through that. And mm. executive function, as I said, is this sort of umbrella term and it's everything from you know, long-term scheduling, uh, figuring, we're using a calendar, planning your time, transitioning between one class and another, that's, or, you know, transitioning between anything and anything else can be really tough for some kids with executive functioning delays. Right. Um, getting started on a project, ending a project, you know, that kind of idea. It's a whole bunch of different skills that are really are, if you think about it this way, the skills of adulting, right? Yeah. Um, being able to put off one thing so that you can do this thing that you really have to do, but it's not as fun. Knowing that, okay, I have a report due, in, a, a history report due in a month, but before that big, I can't just do it all at once the night before. I've got like an outline due in a week and then I've got notes due and then I've got, you know, all these other things due. So understanding how to manage all of that stuff, that is where executive function that's uh, lies. That's, that's why it can't be talked about as one big thing. It has to right. be broken down into all the particulars. And there are a couple of people who write beautifully about executive function that I also love. There's a wonderful book by this woman, Anna Homayun, called um, Late Lost, oh, sorry, 
No, sorry. That's there's two different books. Anna's book is called "That Crumpled Paper Piece of Paper Was Due Last Week." That crumpled <laughs> piece of paper was due last week, and it's about helping kids sort of deal with all that stuff. And then there's another book called "Late, Lost, and Unprepared," and that one's also about executive functioning, and that one's really funny too. But "Late, Lost, and Unprepared" and "That Crumpled Piece of Paper Was Due Next Last Week" all get at you know exactly what goes awry before executive function kicks in. And again, it's not something we can force because it's about a process of synaptogenesis and myelination in the brain. Um, and we, you know, there's nothing we can do except help. Well, that's not true. We can help that process along by making sure kids get proper nutrition and get plenty of sleep and mm -hmm. aren't dealing with trauma and um, stress, toxic stress in the home because toxic stress is if if you want to derail learning, the fastest way to do that is to stress kids out. It's mm. the reason that, you know, for right. example, being timed on assignments can cause some kids to completely unravel and not yeah. learn anything because that's a, a, a form of stress. It's In fact, we know that timing kids, for example, on math facts is one of the fastest ways to create a math anxiety in a kid. Huh. Um, okay. It just, and, you know, speed and mastery are not the same thing. So when right. it comes to... When it comes to things I really want my students to understand, I just, you know, need to lower the stress in my classroom as much as possible. I can't eliminate it. And we need for them to be right. able to be, you know, be adaptable and be able to deal with some stress. But I will lower the toxic stress as much as possible for uh, control what I can. But for the kids that are, you know, being hurt at home or not getting enough food at home or are homeless, for those kids, it's no wonder they can't learn at the same rate as other kids because the yeah. learning, their ability to learn has essentially been shut down in their brains um, right. due to the stress they're dealing with outside of school. Right. That's really interesting and a great point that we have to um, be able to, with the, the school, that the elementary school that my kids were at, um, it was, uh, there were, there were a lot of, um, a lot, there were maybe 50% free lunches in the school. Mm -hmm. It was, a, it was, um, and God loved that school. It was very diverse yeah. and it was, a, it was a great school, but I, I, you know, once we were all sent home, I wondered about this, some of these kids. Yeah. What well, are and they doing? Where the are last, they? Yeah. The last five years of my teaching career, I was teaching kids in this inpatient drug and alcohol rehab in Vermont. And many of our kids came from group homes. Many of our kids were in foster care and moving from place to place. And, you yeah. know, what we know about highly mobile kids like that is that, number one, they lose about six months of learning with every move. Um, mm -hmm. So, oh, wow. uh, and kids in foster care tend to move a couple times during high school, three to four times during high school on average. So, right. if you can imagine, they're losing, you know, half <laughs> half of their high school experience in those transitions, especially when high schools don't have, you know, when schools don't have um, sort of a, a, a curriculum that makes sense. So, or right. that's tracked. So, um, yeah, it's it's really problematic for kids who move a lot, and yeah. uh, especially kids in foster care. Well, kind of on on that note, let's talk mm -hmm. a little bit about your new book. And when does it come sure. out? It comes out on April sixth. It came 6th? out, I suppose, by okay. the time people hear this, came out on April sixth. It's called The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. And that came out of, it dovetails with Gift of Failure. There's a lot in there still about 
self-efficacy and supporting kids for who they are, not who we want them to be, you know, that kind of idea. But at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm an alcoholic and I have uh, at this point about seven and a half years of recovery, but I have kids who are genetically predisposed to substance abuse. I also taught kids who were dealing with substance abuse. And really this book came out of, again, the answers to the questions I needed, you know, right. when the expert say substance abuse is preventable, I want to know what that means. Like, yeah. what can we control and what can't we control and um, what works and what doesn't work. And I needed, I'm very fortunate to be married to um, a physician and he has a, a, he's a statistician as well. And so, uh, you know, I can go to him with a body of research and say, help me with this, what in here is reliable and what's not. And um, we were, I was able to sort of come up with this this book that's really about what we can do and what we can't do in helping prevent substance abuse in kids and how we can get to that ideal of substance abuse is preventable. That's beautiful work, Jessica. That is really, (laughs) I know that that you can take that, your your own experience and be able to turn it around and help other kids, you know, other, other parents to help their kids with that knowledge, you know, with that knowing, okay, there's this, there's this part of me, there's this part of our family. And how can we, how can we support the kids so that they don't go down that path? Well, and it turns out there's a lot we can do that we're not doing. I mean, only yeah. 57% of schools in this country have any kind of substance abuse prevention program. Mm. And of that 57%, only 10% of those programs are evidence-based, um, have been looked at objectively to see if they actually do anything. And some programs, um, luckily they've been revamped, but for a long time, there were programs, we were using programs in schools that actually increase the chances that kids will be, oh. um, huh. the kids will use substances because they use scare tactics or they used um, the just say no approach. And that those we know actually can have the opposite effect. So right. um, yeah, the, the, and the evidence-based programs, I'm really heartened because the evidence-based programs that really seem to work are in some part already starting to take hold in schools because they're really just very thorough social emotional learning programs and social emotional right. learning programs are all the rage these days. So yeah. if we can just jump on that bandwagon with those good social emotional learning programs and expand them to include health um, education in a really strong structured way, we're most of the way there. I I think, you know, I think schools don't have to do a ton to change what they're doing to make their programs more effective. And a lot of these programs um, work really great in partnership with families and give families materials they need that are evidence-based to help prevent substance abuse in their own kids, in their own home. So it's, um, I'm, I'm always optimistic, though. I'm a hopeless optimist. So we'll, we'll I love see. that. I'm hoping, Beautiful. I'm just hoping that, that you know, I can put this thing out there and it lands in enough hands that enough kids need get, you know, the help that they need early on and enough parents can sort of look at what they're doing and saying, oh, I didn't even realize I was sending that message. So Right. Well, that's, I'll have to have you on again. And I'd love to talk more about that and the things mm-hmm. that we can do. You know, you, you mentioned, we're, we're, we won't go into it today, but you mentioned mm-hmm. the scare tactics mm-hmm. and, um, and the, uh, you know, I was doing things when at my kids' ages that I do not want my kids to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah. Or I'm hoping. Yeah. But and I anyway. Right. And I, I cover that. It's another I conversation. Promise. <laughs> I promise I do cover that. Okay, great, great. Well, Jessica, this has been 
amazing. This has been an amazing conversation. And I'm telling you to the listeners, you have got to pick up the gift of failure (laughs) wherever you are in your parenting journey, because this is going to help you. Like I said, I wish that my kids are in middle school now, but I wish I had had it a long time ago. I I wish I had had it with my other stack of (laughs) parenting books. But see, that's the wonderful thing about both the gift of failure and the addiction inoculation and specifically gift of failure, because what we're asking kids to do is to not ignore their mistakes, not pretend their mistakes didn't happen, not blame them on someone else, but say, oh, I made a mistake. What do I leave behind? And what do I take with me so that I can be better Mm -hmm. next time? And if we take these books and I take these books because I changed a lot of what I did in the classroom and at home based on what I learned from both of these books. Mm -hmm. And um, then I'm modeling exactly what I want to see from my kids. If my older kid or if my younger kid complains about the fact that things have changed since the older brother was home, I can say, well, you know, I just didn't, I didn't know. I didn't have the data then. Now I do. And in order to be the best parent I can be, I'm changing what we're doing. And that's my job is to be the best parent I can be. So I'm modeling for him exactly the intellectual and emotional bravery I want to see in him. So, you know, that's all we can ever do is just model for them what we want to see in them. That's exactly that is that is kind of the reason that I do the work that I do, because we're modeling, you know, and if we want we, we need to model what we what we want to see. You know, and it Absolutely. takes work. It takes a lot of work in ourselves and it then really to parent does. on top of it, but so worth it. You know, yeah. I, I, I can see the difference in my kids just in what I've done in, in my own life since they mm-hmm. were, I, I can see it. I've, I see yeah. examples of, I, I hear it coming out of their mouths. So it's, it's definitely worth the work, worth the effort. So Jessica, um, can you tell us about a time in motherhood? that felt impossible when you either (laughs) achieved something or you overcame something that you thought, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be able to do this. Yeah. So oddly enough, um, I, it was with gift. It was around the time I handed in my first um, draft of gift of failure. So I handed that book in. I had been a journalist for a while. Obviously I've been writing my whole life. I've high hopes that like my editor's going to pick up the phone and say, it's perfect. No edits needed. (laughs) Um, And what happened was I handed the book in on October 31st, my deadline. And November 1st, I went I had been helped. A friend of mine has a big stable of horses and I was helping. And what we would do is buy um, horses at meat prices, um, rescue them and then train them and resell them so that Mm. they give them a second life. And I was uh, training this one horse and I was out with my husband riding and I was thrown from that horse and I got a really bad concussion. I forgot. I I didn't know what my book was about. I mean, it was really bad and I couldn't read or write for a little bit. And got this really bad post-concussion syndrome where I got really depressed. At the same time, I did get a call from my editor and it was to say, I need you to come to New York because we have some things to talk about, which oh. is you know, not what you want to hear. Right. And what she told me was, don't worry, this happens a lot with journalists because you think in 1200 word chunks and this is a 70, 80,000 word book, but this book is unpublishable in its current form. And she said, maybe we need to bring in a ghostwriter to help you organize it. And of course, as a writer, I was like, I can't have a ghostwriter. I can't, my pride, you know. Plus I wanted to learn. So somehow I managed to not just vomit in her office. And uh, (laughs) she, I said, look, give me, two probationary chapters. Let me have two chapters 
to get this right. You tell me everything I did wrong, everything I need to change. I will internalize all of that. I will digest all of that. And then I will give you two chapters and you can let me know if I did it. And two chapters later, she gave me another two, another two, another two. It turned into the whole book that I did by myself. But at the same time, I had sunk into this horrible depression because um, of the concussion. Of course, I didn't realize that's what it was at the time. So my poor kids had to watch me come to a crisis about my career as a writer, Mm, um, my mental uh, mental health crisis. And at the same time, I was also just barely sober. I mean, I had just gotten sober a year before. And the cool thing about that is the way that all ended up going down made it so that all of those accomplishments on the other end were so much more meaningful. When the gift of failure hit the New York Times bestseller list, it wasn't like, ooh, overnight sensation. Mom sold a book and then wrote it and it was just easy and there it is. They were like, she dug deep for this one and she had to be super humble. And then when I wrote uh, The Addiction Inoculation, I shared with them that when I handed in the first draft of that book, my editor came back and she said, wow, you learned some stuff because these edits are so light, we can publish this one early if you want. So what I did was I just took all of the stuff I did wrong with the first book, put it on these huge checklists of what not to do and what to do, checked off every single chapter as I went and just learned from what I had done wrong the first time. So from my perspective, failing at that, making, screwing that up was such an incredible parenting lesson, even though it was a huge crisis of confidence for me, um, was such an incredible opportunity for my children to witness what it really looks like when you have to be humble and learn from your mistakes and not just be good at stuff right off the bat, because there are a lot of kids out there in the world right now who fall apart the minute they are not good at something the first time they try it. And, um, you know, watching, giving our kids the opportunity to see us struggle with things that are hard for us and take mm-hmm. um, take on challenges that are just a little beyond our ability or comfort level, that's great for them. So that's the advice I often give to parents is um, don't just tell them that they're supposed to be brave and take challenges right. and take risks. You have to show them how to do it by modeling it yourself. Yeah, Jessica, that story is just, that is the gift of failure. <laughs> That's exactly it. And it was so humiliating. You got it. (laughs) I couldn't tell that story for a long time because it was so humiliating to me. Right. It made me just sick. But when that story got published in a blog, actually, someone's blog, they asked me to write about my biggest failure. And I wrote about that. And um, so many authors wrote me and said, oh, my gosh, thank you so so much for that story, because I thought I was the only one who had the worst ever first version of a article, novel, whatever. Well, Um, and yeah. And you wonder if 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 there could have been a second book that would have been amazing if they had just done what you did and took that, took the gift of failure, you know, Um, Jessica, this has been a fantastic conversation. Again, I think that we'll have to have you back on the show. We'll talk, talk about your new book and um, how can our listeners uh, get a hold of you? How can they find you? Everything is at jessicalahey.com. I'm, I hang out on Twitter. My social media of choice tends to be Twitter and Instagram, uh, mainly because Twitter is where all the teachers are. Teachers ah, are, okay. uh, they as, are a profession, <laughs> as a right. profession, teachers are one of the biggest users of Twitter. So I tend to hang out with them a lot on Twitter, but I'm, so I'm at Twitter at, at Jess Leahy and I'm on Instagram at, at Teacher Leahy. 
Okay, perfect. And you also have a podcast. You were telling me about the podcast. I do. It's so much fun. We've been doing it. Um, my co-hosts are KJ Delantonia, who's a uh, non used to be my New York Times editor, actually, nonfiction writer turned fiction writer. Her book, The Chicken Sisters, was Reese Witherspoon's pick for her December for her book club in December. And Serena Bowen, who is a uh, best-selling uh, contemporary romance author, and our podcast is called Hashtag Am Writing, and it's essentially just for anyone who wants to be a writer, anyone who's struggling to start, anyone mid-career successful. We've got a little of everything there. We have New York Times editors on there, and we have people who are just starting out and trying to get their first articles placed. And um, and a little Facebook group, that, uh, the hashtag I'm writing Facebook group that goes along with it. And um, we hang out in there and just support each other. It's really, it's really fun. We're in our fourth year, and it's been, um, it's just been delightful. We get to interview authors like David Sedaris and Richard Russo and Anna Quinlan. Um, and then sometimes just sit around and talk about how hard things can be sometimes. <laughs> I love that. And I know I, ha I have several books in me. I know I've, I've, um, they're coming. So I'm definitely right. going to check that out too. Good. Well, Jessica, this has been amazing. Thank you for taking the time to so uh, talk to us today. And again, we'll have you back. <laughs> Excellent. Right. I look forward to it. Thank you. You're welcome. Goodbye for now. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Vision Driven Mom with ADHD podcast. To get started on your Vision Driven Mom journey, go to visiondrivenmomwalk.com to download the Vision Walk audio guide. Join the collective of moms with ADHD moving their bodies and their lives forward and leaving overwhelm behind. Anything is possible, even for the mom with ADHD. Goodbye for now.